Well, if this is your first time to join us or your first time to join us for this series, I just want you to know you're coming in on a very unique series that's designed for a very, very unique audience. And when I talk about a series, uh, this, this is always true, but it's especially true for this one. A series is basically one long presentation or one long sermon, if you want to call it that, that's divided in this case into six different parts. And so I just tell you all that because you're coming in on the middle of a conversation, and that's okay. I'll, I'll try to catch you up really quickly. But for this series especially, context is everything. Context is everything. So I hope that today intrigues you enough that you'll go back and you'll catch up on the series and you'll track with us over the next few weeks because otherwise if you don't have the full context, it might be a little confusing or it might be uh, easy to misunderstand what we're doing here and why we're talking about what we're talking about. But you can find all the messages for this series at journeycalway.com. You can find the video, the audio, you can subscribe to our podcast, uh, however you want to do that, but it's easy for you to track along if you want to. And I said just a moment ago that this series is designed for a very unique audience, and it is. I'm not addressing directly those of you who are Christians, although you can figure out how this applies to you. I'm not addressing those of you who are atheists, even though you can figure out how this applies to you. I'm addressing a group of you in the middle, and I'm wanting to spend a few weeks having a very, very transparent conversation about your questions, your doubts, your skepticism, and your frustration. You are a group that researchers have named the nuns, N-O-N-E-S, the nuns. And the reason they named you that is because you do not affiliate, you are non-affiliated with any religion. You're not affiliated with any religion. And you are the fastest growing group in America. 23% of all Americans, 35% of all millennials now no longer identify with any religion whatsoever. And if this is you, this is your story, right? You walked away from, the reason you're none is you decided to move away from or walk away from God, Christianity, church, faith, religion, whatever terminology you want to put around it. It doesn't mean you don't believe in God anymore, but it's just, you know, if, if, your friends are into that, that's fine for them. You have been there, done that, and you don't want to do it again. So you've decided to walk away because you found this, whatever this was for you, you found this to be very, very unappealing. Now, the problem is, and we talked about this in week one, the problem is you can't move away from something without moving towards something else. And that something else you move toward, if you walk away from theism, a belief in God or, you know, Christianity, then you move toward or you walk toward atheism. But this is what makes it so frustrating to be a nun because you just feel stuck in the middle. You don't want to embrace atheism any more than you want to go back and embrace this Christianity or this belief in God or this church experience that you grew up with. So it's like, no, I don't want that. I mean, we talked about this the first week. The, the idea that you're nothing more than biology, chemistry, and physics. There is no God. You're just biology, chemistry, and physics, which means there is no you in the sense that you think of you. There is no, you have no mind, you have no self, you have no uh, free will, you have no free choice, you have no value. I mean, there is no such thing as value in the world. I mean, you start to look at some of the conclusions that you must come to if you believe in atheism, and you realize, I don't want to embrace that. And most people have not embraced that. As a matter of fact, while this group of people in the middle have grown so rapidly, the number of atheists has not really budged or moved in our country. So there's a large number of people, a large number of you, who are just stuck in the middle. Researchers call you the nuns. But as we talked about, you know, in week one, you've got to figure out how to move one direction or another because it's, it's, it's not intellectually defensible. It's not intellectually honest just to stay here forever, and it's impossible actually to do it. You're always moving one direction or another, so it's worth a conversation, and it's worth some uh, exploration for you to figure out, well, does this make sense? Should I embrace this, atheism, or does this make sense? And yet, what's frustrating to you is you're thinking, I don't want any of those options. So, I hear a lot of these stories. I call them deconversion stories. And one of the things that I've been most excited about in this series are the number of these stories that so many of you have shared with me. It has been a blast to listen to them and to hear your point of view and your perspective on, on this. It has been so, so helpful. And as I said last week in the message last week, in every deconversion story I hear, they all have two things in common. One of the things that has contributed to a person walking away from faith or church or God, is this idea of a somebody-told-me-so God. A somebody-told-me-so God. In other words, in every story I hear, there is a view of God that a person chose to walk away from. And you, if you walked away from it, you assumed that that was the accurate and only view of God because it was presented to you probably when you were a kid, maybe when you were older, but it was presented to you by someone you trusted. 
a parent, a priest, a pastor, you know, some person of authority. And so you just assumed, and you should have, you just assumed, okay, um, this is what's accurate. This is what God is really like. And then you got to be older and you realize, wait a minute, the circumstances, the pressures, the rigors of adult life, this, this childhood view of God I was given, it, it doesn't hold up under all of that. And you finally came to the conclusion, you know, not like overnight, not like on Thursday at 3 p.m., but eventually you came to the conclusion, well, wait a minute, uh, if this doesn't make sense in my adult world and they don't have any other answers for me, then I think I'm just going to walk away, and that's part of what contributed to you walking away. Now, last week, and I'm not going to dig into this, but last week we talked about six different false or inaccurate views of God that many of us have presented to us that contribute to us walking away. And there are more than six, but I, I talked about six of the most common ones. And then I made this point, that if you walked away from a view of God that was inaccurate, that first of all, that's actually a really good thing. And secondly, you may have walked away from a God that doesn't exist anyway, which is incredibly good news for you. Because as you're stuck in the middle and you're looking this way going, I don't want to embrace atheism, I don't, I don't want to go there, that's unappealing. But you look back and you think about the version of God or church or Christianity that you were presented and you think, well, that's unappealing, I don't want to walk back there. Well, if you walked away from a version or a view that doesn't exist anyway, that wasn't true, that wasn't right, then it means there might be a more accurate view of God that you would find appealing and that it's worth you turning around and walking back to reconsider or to reevaluate or explore what God is really like. And I've told you up front, that is my agenda for this series. It is to do whatever I can to convince you if you are in the middle, if you're a nun, if you're stuck, to convince you it's worth it for you to reevaluate and reconsider Christianity and understand an accurate version of Christianity and understand an accurate view of God. You've got to let go of those somebody told me so God's own. Now, there's a second component or second factor that's always in these deconversion stories and it's what I call a Bible tells me so faith a Bible tells me so faith and this is what I want to talk about today a Bible tells me so faith looks like this as you were growing up you as you got older you began to have questions or maybe you had doubts or maybe you heard this or were told this at school or were taught this or a friend gave you a book and it said this. And you went to your parents or you went to the pastor or whoever it was. And you began to ask very legitimate fact-based questions. And all you got were faith-based answers. In other words, every time you ask a question, well, how do we know that's true? They would say, well, the Bible says. Well, why do we believe that? Because the Bible says. Well, what about what the Bible says? Yeah, but science says, well, no, 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 the Bible says. And you were presented this view of God as if there was this big religious book that had dropped down from the sky called the Bible, and everything in this Bible determined your faith. And the answer to every question you had was, well, it's in here. What's in here? Why should you believe that? What's in here? Well, I don't know about, no, 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 it's in here. The Bible says, the Bible says, the Bible says. That was the only answer you ever got. And here's the, the key part. The conversation ended there. The conversation ended there. You were just supposed to accept whatever you were told because the Bible says... And this big religious book is all true, so you should just take whatever the Bible says. And if you were brave enough, at some point you raised your hand and said, well, wait a minute, how do we know everything in here is true? And that really got you in trouble, didn't it? Because the minute you, you ask that question, they're like, whoa, you don't have enough faith. You just, it's just your problem. You don't have enough faith. Well, how do we know everything is true? Well, I'll tell you how we know everything is true. Because the Bible says it's true. And you're like, wait a minute, that's like circular reasoning, because this says this is true, then this must be true. That sounds like what politicians do all the time, isn't it? Well, I said it, so I'm making it true, so it's true. You know, It's like, whoa, that doesn't hold up. But this is how it was presented to you. You had very legitimate questions, and the only answer you got, and it wasn't sufficient, the only answer you got, and it wasn't credible enough, the only answer you got was the Bible says you should just take whatever's in this big religious book, and you should believe it because it says you should believe it. Now, Here's, the, here's where the, the problem with that, or here's, here's what that runs into. What that does is that presents something to you that gives you, in essence, an idea that simply isn't true. What this does is this tells you, well, the Bible's just this big religious book, and there's not really a good, credible explanation for why we can trust anything that's in it other than the fact that it says to trust what's in it. And that simply is not the case. Okay? So... What I want to do today is I want to spend the next few minutes talking about this. 
And I want to explain to you why the Bible tells me so faith is not enough. And why the Bible tells me so faith isn't even necessary. There's something way, way better than that. Now, before we jump into it, I need to give you a warning. So I need everybody to pay attention. If you've already tuned out or your mind's drifting, right back here, okay? Phone's down. Everybody pay attention. If you're watching online, get out of the Amazon tab and come back to me, okay? I know what happens. I know. So everybody right here for just a second, okay? Just for a second. You've got to pay very, very careful attention today. I want to explain to you why. One, I'm going to explain some things to you that for most of you is brand new information for you. Some of you will have never heard this before, and it's a little bit complicated. You're a smart crowd, so I'm not worried about you getting it, but it's a little bit complicated, and so I want you to track along. And I'm, here's my concern. Here's what I know. If you listen to me casually today, like you sometimes listen to me, I know, it's fine. I do the same thing. If you listen to me casually today, you're kind of tuned in, and then you drift, and then you tune in, and then you drift. If you do that, if you listen casually and not carefully, you are definitely going to misunderstand what I say today. You're definitely going to misunderstand. So... I don't want you to do that, and if you drift, and if this creates confusion or questions or kind of makes you upset, you can go back and watch it or listen to it and make sure you heard everything correctly, and then I'm always open to those conversations. I, I don't mind those at all. They're fun for me, so you're welcome to ask about it, but I just want you to stay tuned in and do your best to track with me for the next few minutes, okay? Everybody with me? We all good with that? Okay, I can't really see you anyway for the light, so I'm going to assume you nod your head yes, okay? So here's where we're going to start today. When I was a kid, I was taught a song. When you were a kid, you were probably taught a song. And the song went like this. Jesus loves me. This I know. Everybody together, let's finish it. Four. Absolutely. Look at all you good little Sunday school kids. You all knew it, didn't you? Jesus loves me. This I know. For the Bible tells me so. And this is where our problem began. I know, I know. I'm, I'm not opposed to the song, okay? Nobody send me nasty emails. I love the song. I taught the song to my kids. Teach it to your kids if you have kids. I'm not saying it's a bad song. But this is where our problem began because what this implies is, how do you know Jesus loves you? Well, because this big religious book tells me so. Well, how do you know Jesus will forgive you? Well, because this big religious book tells me so. Well, how do you know Jesus wants a relationship with you? This big religious book tells me so. And how do I know that's true? Well, because it says it's true. And that's the end of the conversation. The implication of this is that the only way we can know these things is because some big religious book tells us. And the other implication of this is that this big religious book we call the Bible the implication is the Bible is the foundation of our faith. In other words, I base everything that I believe off of a big religious book. I base everything I believe off of this book that how do I know it's true? Because it tells me it's true, and so that's all I can do. That is actually not the way to approach your faith. There is a better way. Now track with me for just a second because... Here's what happens. Here's why this is not a healthy way to approach, and here's why this is not an accurate way to view your faith. This is why you can't have a Bible tells me so faith. If the Bible is the foundation of our faith, as the Bible goes, so goes our faith. Okay, now just follow along. If the Bible is the foundation of our faith, why do you believe what you believe, the Bible says? Why, what about this, the Bible says? What about this? I don't have any explanation for it. I can't explain that, but the Bible says. If the Bible is the foundation for your faith, then as the Bible goes, so goes your faith. In other words, if this big religious book being 100% true is what your faith is based upon, then if there's ever any doubt about any part of this being true, then your faith starts to wobble and your faith becomes shaken. Now, here's where I see this all the time. You run up against somebody who's got some objections to the Bible. And they start pointing out problems in different parts of the Bible. Or you go, into, you go to college and you're in a biology class or chemistry class or whatever it is, and they begin saying, you Christians believe in six-day creation, and that's in the Bible. Well, there's no way in the science shows. And all of a sudden you're like, well, wait a minute. And then you go back to your church or your pastor and you say, well, we believe in creation. And then they say this, and the science seems to point this way. And, and all you get back is, well, you've got to believe in creation because the Bible says so, and that's not sufficient. And all of a sudden your faith gets shaken. Or you end up in a philosophy class where they say, hey, as a kid, you were taught all these cute little Bible stories. But they didn't tell you about the stories of these cities being annihilated. And they didn't tell you about the stories of this happening or that happening. And all of a sudden you discover things are in the Bible that you 
didn't know were in the Bible, and it shakes your faith, and you can't make sense of that and the view of God that you were taught. You start to lose or walk away from your faith. You begin to find problems with things. You begin, hey, they say, you know, there are contradictions here and contradictions there. If, the, if you view the Bible as the foundation of your faith, in other words, everything you believe rests on the fact that the Bible, your confidence, 100% true, then the minute that you begin to have doubts about any of that, the minute you run into problems with any of that, your faith is shaken because, and understandably so, the Bible being the foundation of your faith leads to this conclusion. If the entire Bible isn't true, then Christianity isn't true at all. If the entire Bible isn't true, then Christianity is true. You've heard people say this. Well, if you, if you can't believe part of it, then you can't believe any of it. And this means all someone has to do is disprove one little piece of the Bible, and our entire faith, your entire faith, crumbles. And for some of you, this is the explanation for why you walked away. This is exactly what happened to you that caused you to become a nun. Now, let me talk for just a second to those of you who are Christians, okay, who are already really nervous about what I'm doing and where I'm going. So hang with me here. Some of you who are Christians are going, well, Matt, this isn't a problem. This, this premise isn't a problem. The Bible can be the foundation of my faith, and I can, I can accept this. That's perfectly fine because I know the Bible is 100% true, and as Christians, we use these three big I words. I know it's inerrant. I know it's infallible. I know it's inspired. I know it's inerrant. I know it's infallible. I know it's inspired. I don't have any doubts. Okay, I'm with you. I get that. I get that. But let me, just, let me just get you to think about something. It is virtually impossible for you to prove every single statement in this book right here is true. It's virtually impossible. Now, if you're a Christian, that's not a problem. That's not a bad thing. Because it is virtually impossible to prove that every statement in any historical document we have is completely true. So this isn't a test of whether the Bible is true or not. Just because you can't prove it's all true doesn't mean it's not. And just because you can't prove it's all true doesn't mean it has less credibility than other historical documents. You can't, you can't prove that every statement of any document is entirely true when you look back through history. Okay? But here's the good news. Here's the good news. It is unnecessary to prove every statement of this book is true for our faith, for Christianity, to have credibility. It is not necessary. You say, well, I believe it's all true. Great, I'm with you, okay? But I'm just telling you, you don't have to prove every statement in here is true in order for Christianity to have credibility. Which means, if you are somebody who walked away from faith because you found problems with the Bible, you can walk back. You can reconsider. You walked away unnecessarily. Now, let me see if I can explain it this way. Christianity does not exist because of the Bible. Christianity doesn't exist because of the Bible any more than you exist because of your birth certificate. All right, now think about this. Your birth certificate documents something that happened in history, namely you were born. What, ha what would happen if you lost your birth certificate? You would not cease to exist, would you? You would have just lost the historical documentation of something that is obvious that happened. That is, you exist. You were born. Well, in the same way, Christianity doesn't exist because of the Bible or because of what we call the New Testament. No. The New Testament documents exist because of an event that happened that is the foundation for Christianity. In other words, if you take the, the second half or the back half of this that we call our New Testament, and you begin to talk about, okay, where did this come from? Is this what started Christianity? No, no, no. There weren't a group of people who wrote documents that we now call the New Testament. And after they wrote them all, they said, wow, that's really good. We should start a religion around that. Let's start Christianity. It's not, it didn't happen that way. No. Something happened. We're going to talk about that something today. Something happened. An event occurred that was the foundation of Christianity. And it was so powerful. And it was so moving that people recorded it. They made historical documents to reference and record what actually happened. And we have those in what we now call our New Testament. But the New Testament did not start or birth Christianity. And the New Testament didn't even show up all at once. Okay. Now again, we think of this as one big book. It's not. It's 66, 66 unique historical documents. And I'll talk more about this in a minute how it got to be this, but it's 66 unique documents. The New Testament is 29 unique 
documents written by about nine different people. It could have been a few more. Written by about nine different people who wrote down and recorded what happened because of this event that started Christianity. And if we were being, you know, completely accurate, and if you, were under, if you wanted to see what it was like in the first century, they didn't have this. We're going to talk about this. They didn't have this. What they had were these little documents. And I could show you what it was like. Like, I could take one of these documents right here, and I could just rip it out, and they would just pass this thing around. Or I could get another and rip it out, because they were all independent. They weren't together. They were all independent. And they were all spread independently. Now, I thought about ripping these out to illustrate this, and some of you Christians would get up and leave the room. It would freak you out. So I'm not doing that, okay? But they didn't come bound in leather. They were unique documents. Now, here's why that's important. Because, again, Christianity doesn't exist because of the Bible. The Bible, the New Testament, it exists because of an event that was the foundation and continues to be the foundation of Christianity. So I want to explore today why you can have confidence in these documents as being reliable and credible and a source you can turn to to figure out and discover what God is really like. Now, in order to do that, before we jump into it, I want to go back to this birth certificate idea. Here's what I want you to think about. Imagine this. Imagine that somebody came to you, and they began to question whether or not you were really the son or the daughter of your parents. They were skeptical of it. They didn't believe it. And now let's just imagine that your parents are no longer with us, okay? What would you do to convince someone that you were the son or daughter of your parents if they would not believe? Well, I'll tell you one approach you could take. One approach you could take is go, to go back to your birth certificate because it is a historical record of something that actually happened in history, namely your birth, and you could look at all the names on that birth certificate and then you could begin to do research and you could begin to investigate and you could either find people who were physically there at your birth and they were eyewitnesses or you could track down people who knew the people who were eyewitnesses. You could track down people who saw you born and who you know, watched you be raised by your parents. You could take that physical document, that historical record of a birth certificate, and use it to build a compelling case for why you do exist and why you are the son or the daughter of your parents. Well, in the same way, you can take these documents that recorded this event that began and is the foundation of Christianity... And you can use these documents to build a compelling case for why you can have confidence that these documents and what they tell us are true. So, in order to explain this to you, hopefully I hadn't lost you, in order to explain this to you, I want to walk you through about 400 years, the first 400 years of Christian history, okay? And this is going to be a little complex, so just track with me. If you walk out of here confused, it's not your fault. It is my fault, all right? I'll do my best to try to explain this, but I need you to track along. And this may be a little difficult for you to take notes on. If you're sitting where you can take pictures of the screen, you're welcome to do that. Just turn your flash off or I won't see for three days, all right? So, so help me out there. But I want to walk you through the first 400 years, and I want to help you to understand why a Bible tells me so faith is not only insufficient, it is unnecessary. There is something way better than that that gives us confidence in Christianity. It's true. So the first thing you need to understand, and then we're going to jump into a timeline. The first thing you need to understand is the difference between the Gregorian calendar and the Julian calendar. Now, real quickly, we operate today on what's known as the Gregorian calendar. And uh, we began operating on this, humans did, about 1582. That's when people started using the Gregorian calendar. Up until then, even in the first century, they followed the Julian calendar. Now, the reason this is important is simply because in 1582, when they switched from Julian to Gregorian, their calculations were off. Their calculations were off. So let me show you this timeline. Most of us believe, and we, we know that in the Gregorian calendar, history is divided in B.C. and A.D., correct? So it's divided by the birth of Jesus, and we assume that the birth of Jesus was at zero. But they messed up when they did the calculations, and they got off by two or three years. So Jesus was actually born in 2 or 3 B.C., according to the calendar we operate by today, okay? Or he was in negative 2 or 3, however you want to think about that. Which is why the first date you need to understand is not 33, because that most of us know that or believe that Jesus was about 33 years old when he was crucified, but it wasn't A.D. 33. The first date is A.D. 30, okay? In A.D. 30, when Jesus was about 33 years old, he was crucified on a Roman cross, Three days later, we Christians believe 
that he rose from the dead. And then over a period of 40 days, he revealed himself to over 500 different people. In other words, there were 500 different eyewitnesses who saw him in different times, different places, over a 40-day period. They had, knew he had died, they watched him die, then they saw him alive. That's a lot of eyewitnesses, over 500 of them. And then after 40 days, Jesus left this earth. And not long after that, there was a Jewish religious holiday, a festival in Jerusalem called uh, Pentecost. And at Pentecost, there were tens of thousands, maybe hundreds of thousands, some people think as many as a million people in Jerusalem. And guys like Peter and John, who were some of Jesus' early followers, they show up at Pentecost, and they begin to speak to crowds, and they explain to the crowds, hey, we followed him. We watched this man Jesus die. Everybody had heard about Jesus, so we watched him die. We saw him alive. We touched him. We talked to him. We ate dinner with him. We ate breakfast with him. Like, we interacted with him so many different times over this 40-day period. He is alive. And there were 500 different witnesses there in Jerusalem who said the same thing. And so these Jews who'd shown up at Pentecost began to believe, and they began to believe by the thousands that Jesus was who he said he was. Because again, 500 witnesses going around saying, yep, I saw him, yep, I saw him, yep, I can verify that's what happened. Like, that's pretty compelling evidence. So they begin to believe by the thousands, and the church begins to grow and grow and grow and grow. That happens starting in AD 30. Now, the next date I want to uh, call your attention to is this one right here, AD 70. In AD 70, something very, very interesting happened. And to give you a little backstory, this is historical. You can Google all this for yourself. In, in AD 70, um, actually four years before, in AD 66, there was a Roman general by the name of Vespasian. Vespasian had his Roman army enter Israel and begin to destroy city after city, village after village, city after city, village after village. Vespasian took uh, thousands of Jewish people and made them slaves and sent them off to work as slaves in different parts of the Roman Empire. This goes on for about four years. It was a brutal, dark time in Jewish history. Vespasian and his army eventually get to Jerusalem, the capital city. And they decide, instead of forcing their way into the city, they're just going to lay siege to it, which simply meant this. They were going to surround it. They were going to cut it off from any support, from any food, from any water. And they were going to let the people in Jerusalem eventually suffer and rot to death until they, it got so extreme in that city that they were willing to let the Romans in. And so Vespasian and his army lay siege to Jerusalem. And they're just waiting and waiting and waiting. Well, in AD 70... Vespasian is called back to Rome, and he eventually becomes the emperor of Rome. So Vespasian leaves his son Titus in charge of the army laying siege to Jerusalem. Titus, if you know Roman history, he eventually becomes the emperor as well. Well, this is an important date. On August the 6th of 70, August the 6th of 70, Titus and his Roman army eventually breach the Jerusalem walls. And when they went in, they annihilated the place. They destroyed the Jewish temple completely, not like damaged it, like desecrated it, destroyed the Jewish temple completely. They crucified thousands of Jews on Roman crosses. They took tens of thousands of Jews and made them slaves. It was the end of the nation of Israel as these Jewish people had known it. So this four-year period of the Jewish-Roman war, this four-year period from 66 to 70, it was the darkest period up to that point in Jewish history. There was so much suffering, so much agony, so much anguish. For these Jewish people, they would never again experience life the way they had known it. And their freedom was gone for them forever. Now here's why this date matters so much. Because, do you know that this, the occupation of Israel, the crucifixions, the destruction of the temple, even though Jesus had predicted that when he was on this earth, did you, do you know that none of these things that happen in this war are referenced or recorded in any of the New Testament documents? None of them. None of the 27 New Testament documents have anything about this. Now, if this was such a cataclysmic moment in Jewish history, why would it not be referenced in any way, especially since Jesus predicted the temple thing, why would they not reference any of it? Well, the most logical, rational explanation is when they wrote those documents, this hadn't happened yet. This hadn't happened yet. The most logical explanation, and there's a little debate about this, but the most logical explanation is that from AD 30 to AD 70, 
within a, this 40-year period, all of the documents that we now call the New Testament, that they were all written in that time frame. Now, here's why that matters so much. Some people argue that some of those documents weren't written until the 90s, but even at that, you've got a 40 to 60-year time frame. Here's why that's so important. Because that means every one of those documents was either written by an eyewitness or based on the account of an eyewitness. And this is the key part. There were so many people alive still at this time who had also witnessed or experienced what was recorded in these documents that you couldn't have made up a legend about things because people would have easily said, nope, I was there, that didn't happen. This wasn't written after everybody in that generation had died away and you could make up a fiction story. This happened while people were still alive and could either verify or refute the claims of these people who wrote what are now the documents of our New Testament. They all happened right here in this little window. Now, if you love the Bible like I love the Bible, if you read it every day like I do, you reach certain passages in these New Testament documents and you think, well, that's just boring and irrelevant and you just roll right past it. But I'm telling you, these New Testament writers, they put so much detail into what they wrote that they made it crystal clear when things happened, where things happened, and who was around when things happened because they were writing to people who were alive at the time, and they were saying, you, in essence, they were saying, you can go ask. You can go check this out. You, we're not trying to hide this or fool you. Like, we're going to give you all the details, and you can travel to wherever we said this happened and find people who were there and verify our claims. They had that much credibility. Paul wrote his letters in the 50s, most of them. Luke, who wrote one of the accounts of Jesus' life, wrote his in the late 40s or the early 50s. Well, you could read anything that Luke had wrote, and then you could go and talk to people who were alive and who saw it or did not see it, but they could verify or refute it. These writers were saying, here, we're laying it all out here. I'm going to give you one example, okay? And we could point to a lot of them. There's so many. But I just want to give you one example. Luke, in his account of Jesus' life, in chapter 3 of Luke, he writes about John the Baptist or John the Baptizer, and he tells a story about him. But here's how he starts the story. Listen to this. He says, In the 15th year of the reign of Tiberius Caesar, when Pontius Pilate was governor of Judea, Herod, tetrarch of Galilee, his brother Philip, tetrarch of Eturia and Taconitis, and Lysanias, tetrarch of Abilene, during the high priesthood of Annas and Caiaphas, the word of God came to John, son of Zechariah, in the wilderness. How's that for some detail? And again, we read this and we're like, gosh, who would even want to try to say those names? That's so boring. Just skip it, right? But no, Luke, again, we don't think this way. Luke was writing this while people were still alive who had experienced what he's writing about. And he is telling everyone who's reading it in the first century. Here's exactly when it happened in history. They knew all of these names. They knew all of these people. He's nailing down exactly where it was. And he is basically double-dog daring them. If you don't believe what I'm saying is true, you just go fact-check me, baby. You just travel over there and ask them, and they'll tell you. Now, I'm telling you, if these New Testament writers were lying about what they put in their documents, it was a risky, risky, risky move because anybody could fact-check it. Because there were so many people still alive who had witnessed it and been in those regions, in those towns, in those situations as they occurred. Now, I don't have time this morning to go through all the reasons why we believe these New Testament documents are so reliable and credible. But if this interests you, and I hope it does because this is so important. If this interests you, there is a book that I would encourage you to grab and one chapter out of it that you should read. The book is called Stealing from God by Frank Turek fascinating book but chapter 7 chapter 7 is a book you should check out because he lays out all of the reasons why we can trust the reliability and the credibility of these new testament writers and of these new testament documents that we have that were written by people like paul and peter and james and john and luke and matthew and on and on now here's what happens these guys begin to write these documents and they're detailing or recounting you know, what they saw, what they heard, what they experienced. And as people start getting copies of them, again, they, it wasn't coming like this. Remember this, okay? It wasn't coming like this. It was like, well, there's Paul's letter to the Romans and they had it and then it kind of circulated around and there's Paul's letter to the Corinthians or the Galatians and there's Luke's account and Matthew's account. Like, it wasn't all together. They just had these individual accounts. Well, what happened is after these men wrote these accounts, people began making copies of them. And so from the time they were written over the next several um, years, 
there was copy after copy after copy produced. And these copies started showing up in places like Rome, Alexandria, Egypt, Constantinople, which is in modern-day Turkey, all along the Mediterranean rim. Like these copies spread all over the known world. And there weren't like one or two copies. Like still to this day, don't miss this, still to this day, we have hundreds, hundreds and hundreds of copies of what Paul and Peter and James and John and Luke and Matthew and all of these guys, what they wrote. Now, we take some things for granted. We accept some things. Like we accept Homer's Iliad and Odyssey is true. We accept different Roman historical documents is true. We have 10 copies, 12 copies, maybe 15 or 20 copies, ancient copies of some of those documents. We have hundreds of copies of these because they spread all over the world. And these people believed they were so valuable, they just wanted to keep copying them and making sure everyone had them. Now let me just ask you a question. What do you copy? What do you copy? You copy things that you think are important. You copy things you think are important. You copy things you want to preserve. And that's what they were doing. And they copied these things with a username, password type of precision. Now, real quickly, some of you, you've heard this. Some of you have said this. Some of you have said, okay, but Matt, this is, this is where, why I don't believe or you know, have any trust in, or in the reliability of the New Testament. Because all these copies you're talking about, when you start comparing them, they all have differences. They all have variations in them. So how do you know which one's true and which one's not? Because they're all different. Yeah, they do have some variations in them. And almost without exception, the variations are so small that it's just like it says, you know, A instead of the, or, you know, it's just, it doesn't change the meaning at all. There are a few variations that do somewhat or could potentially change the meaning of the sentence. And we Christians are so sneaky. Here's what we've done. When you get a Bible or you're online with your digital Bible, you can click on a little link or you can look right at the bottom and it'll say, hey, some early manuscripts read, some later manuscripts read, any variation that could change the meaning of the sentence at all is documented in your Bible. You can see for yourself. Well, some of the copies said it this way and some of the copies said it that way. But none of them change the meaning or the, or the core of Christianity. It's not like there is one copy that says Jesus rose from the grave. And then you find another copy and it says there was a rose growing on Jesus' grave. Now that's a little different, right? That'd be like, okay, well, either, you know, that could change everything. No, no, no. You don't find any of that. This is all very, very, very small. So all this happens in the decades uh, that occur after Jesus leaves this earth. These people write it down. There are all these copies. Now, the next date I want to draw your attention to is an important one. It is 312. I want to fast forward all the way to AD 312. You all know what happened here. Constantine became emperor of Rome. He became emperor of Rome. Now, What's interesting is from this point all the way to this point, it has been open season on Christians. Christianity has not been accepted. Christianity is not legal. Now, there were some periods in here where there was less persecution than others. But I'm telling you, during this period, if you were caught with a copy or a fragment of a copy of what Paul wrote or John wrote or Matthew wrote or Peter wrote, you were in big, big trouble. But then Constantine comes to power in 312. And when he comes to power, interestingly enough, his mother is a Christian. Christianity's not legal, but his mother's a Christian, and so she's protected because it's Constantine's mother, right? Now, you've all heard Constantine became a Christian, and he made it the official religion and made it legal. Listen, whether Constantine actually came to believe these accounts, I don't know. Maybe he did, maybe he didn't. But Constantine was an optimistic politician. Here's what he faced when he came to power. The Roman Empire at that time was so divided. It had so many different factions in it. And Constantine realized very quickly, if I don't unify this empire somehow, it's going to break apart and I'm going to lose it all. And he looked to his mother and he realized, wait a minute, mom may have the answer here. Because there is only one thing in this empire that most people have in common, and that is their following Jesus. They are Christians. And so Constantine had the bright idea, well, if I will legalize and make Christianity the official religion of the empire, most everybody in the empire is going to agree on that, and it will unify the empire. And so that is what he did. Now, here's what's so remarkable about that to me. From this point to this point, in spite of the opposition, in spite of the persecution, 
Christianity grew so rapidly that by the time Constantine came to power, the majority of the Roman Empire were Christians. That's kind of hard to explain, isn't it? But that's how much this movement had multiplied and grown. So 312, he makes Christianity the official religion of Rome. Now, the next date that's important for you to know is this one right here. AD 350. AD 350 was the very first time that anyone, don't miss this, the very first time that anyone took what we call the Old Testament, which is so offensive to Jews, it's their scriptures, and when they hear that, I'm sure they think, well, no, it's not old, it's actually current to us, because they still follow it, but we, it's the first time anyone took those Jewish scriptures of the Old Testament, and they collected all of the New Testament documents, or copies of all of the New Testament documents. It's the first time, AD 350, they took the Old Testament and the New Testament, and they actually put it together in one place. Very first time. It did not happen until 350. Until 350, you couldn't go anywhere and find all of these documents together. Nope, so-and-so had a copy of this, so-and-so had a copy of that, so-and-so had a copy of that. And it wasn't until 388 that this collection that had been put together was called the Bible. So this, this religious book as we know it, did not exist until 388. Now, if all that was confusing or boring to you, just tune back in, okay? We're done with the timeline. Tune back in. Because here's my point. Here's what I want to drive home if you don't get anything else I'll say today. My point is this. Christianity made its greatest strides during the 282 years before the Bible, as we know it, even existed. For the first 300 years of Christianity, people were not going around saying, well, why do you believe Jesus is alive? Because the Bible says so. Well, why, why do you believe Jesus will forgive you because the Bible says so? Why do you believe Jesus loves you because the Bible says so? Because there was no Bible as we say so. That is not what they debated. No, the question for the first 300 years was, did Jesus rise from the dead? And if you had asked them, did Jesus rise from the dead, here's what they would have told you. I believe he rose from the dead. They would have not said because the Bible says so. They would have said because we have eyewitness accounts that were verified when they were written. And Matthew said so, and Mark said so, and Luke said so, and John said so, and Peter and Paul and James and on and on. These, these people said so. And they wrote down what they saw, heard, and experienced. We don't believe it because the Bible says so. Like they would have said, what do you mean the Bible? They would have said, we believe it because look at all these historical documents that verify and record for us what happened when Jesus was on this earth. Let me explain it another way. If we could take a skeptic today, okay, somebody who's got all these questions and doesn't buy into or believe the Bible, if we could take a skeptic today and we could somehow transport them back in time where they met Peter and had a conversation with Peter, imagine that this skeptic, imagine that she looked at Peter and she said, Peter, okay, you're taking this way too seriously. Like, you're putting your life on the line. Eventually, I know you're going to be martyred for your faith. I know what happens. You're going to be crucified upside down because you won't deny that Jesus rose from the dead. Like, Peter, Listen, i got to stop you. Before you go to that extreme, Peter, you need to know that in the future, we've discovered some stuff. In the future, we're pretty certain. Science is proven. Hey, there was no six-day creation. There was no Adam and Eve. Hey, Peter, you need to know that, you know, archaeologists, they don't believe that your people, the Israelites, you know, had an exodus out of Egypt and came to the promised land. They don't believe that happened. Hey, hey, Peter, you need to know that no, no scientist, no respectable scientist believes in a worldwide flood. and no, Nobody with any sense believes that Jonah lived in the belly of a fish for three days and three nights. Are you kidding me? Peter, Like you just need to know, because you're about to give your life for this, you need to know all of that stuff has been disproven. Do you know what Peter would say to that skeptic? I'll tell you. Peter would have looked at that skeptic and said, thanks for sharing the information. I have no idea what you're talking about but it doesn't matter because that's not why I'm following Jesus. Peter would have said this, you need to understand, I'm following Jesus because he invited me to come follow him and spend time with him, and for three years I was with him 24-7. And there were moments where I believed he was who he said he was. He claimed to be God, and sometimes I thought, he's right, he's the Messiah. And then there were other times where I doubted, and then I'd believe, and then he would say something or do something that just made me think God would never do that, and I would doubt again. And I finally thought that he was who he said he was until the night of his arrest. And I denied him three times, and then I took off, I tucked tail, and I hid. And I was certain as he was crucified on a cross. He was not who he said he was because God doesn't get crucified. 
And Peter would tell that skeptic, for three days I stayed hunkered down with my buddy John in a little room in a little house in Jerusalem. We were scared to death because we thought the people who crucified Jesus were coming after us. And on Sunday morning, the start of the third day, there was this crazy banging at our door, and we opened it up, and there is Mary Magdalene who had followed around with Jesus some, and we knew her. Mary Magdalene is babbling away about an empty tomb, and John and I are like, what in the world is she talking about? So we ran, and we found an empty tomb. And Peter would say, guess what I decided when I saw that empty tomb? Somebody stole the body. That's what I decided, because dead people don't come back to life. This is what Peter did. I, somebody stole the body, and so I walked away with John going, that doesn't make any sense. Who would have stolen that body? Why would you do that? But later that day, lo and behold, there's Jesus standing in front of me alive. And I had dinner with him. And Peter would go on to say over the next 40 days, I was fishing one day, and there's Jesus on the beach, and he comes and hangs out with us, and he cooks breakfast for us, and we eat. I had so many conversations with Jesus, and Peter would look at the skeptic and say, okay, you, you can tell me all you want to about creation and floods and, and Jonah and the fish and the exodus. Like I, I, if none of that happened, it doesn't matter. Because I watched him die, I saw him alive, and when a man predicts his own death and resurrection and pulls it off, I'm going with him. That is why Peter believed what Peter believed. So all the other questions would not have mattered. See, here's my point. Here's my point. In the first, for the first 300 years, the debate centered on an event, not a book. For the first 300 years, the debate was not, is all the Bible true? Is all the Bible true? Is all the Bible true? This was not the foundation of their faith. This didn't even exist as we know it. The debate was, did Jesus rise from the dead? Now that's important to you and to me, for this reason. Christianity doesn't exist because of the Bible. Christianity ex exists because of the resurrection. And those events are recorded for us in historical documents that have been put together and are now called the Bible. But it's not some big book that just came down out of the sky. It's accounts of eyewitnesses to what happened. That's why we have our New Testament. Now here's why this matters. Because if you walked away from God or faith or Christianity or the church because you had issues with the Bible, you walked away unnecessarily. You know, you walked away unnecessarily. Because the issue is not, well, did this happen or that happen? Or what about the Exodus and the creation? No, no, that matters. Your question is, who is Jesus? And did he rise from the dead? That is the foundation of our faith. I would go so far as to say this. If it is one day proven beyond a shadow of a doubt that Adam and Eve didn't exist, the exodus never happened, the worldwide flood was a hoax, Jonah couldn't have lived in the belly of a fish for three days, if all that is proven false, it does not shake my faith. Because my faith is not built on every last thing of the Bible being true. My faith is built on the resurrection that changed everything. Now, if you ask me, well, Matt, do you take all that stuff in the Old Testament seriously? Yes, I take it seriously, and I believe it, and here's why. Because Jesus took it seriously, and he believed it. Jesus said, hey, Adam and Eve existed. Jonah was in the belly of a fish for three days. A flood did happen, and the exodus did occur. And I'm like Peter. If a man can predict his own death and resurrection and pull it off, I'm going with him. I don't have to be that smart. I'm just going with him. But if you have problems with that, it doesn't mean you have to walk away from Christianity. I'll say this and I'll close. So my daughter's five years old now. When she was two, around one, two years old, we had a little routine at bedtime when I put her to bed, and we'd sit in a rocking chair and read a book, and then I would sing her a song. I would sing her, Jesus Loves Me. But I changed the words. I don't know if this is legal or not, but I changed the words. Here's what I sang her. Jesus loves me, this I know, for history tells me so. Because I want her to know, Ellie, Ellie, Jesus loves you, and you know that, not because there's some big religious book that tells you that, and you just got to believe it's true. Ellie, Jesus loves you, this you know, for Matthew was there, and he saw the resurrection happen, and he wrote it down so you would know it was so. And Peter denied Jesus and fled, and then he came back, and he gave his life for him because he saw a dead man come back to life, and he was certain it was so. 
Ellie, I want you to know Jesus loves you because Luke decided I'm going to investigate and research and, and talk to all of these eyewitnesses and then I'm going to put their account down on paper. And he researched it so you would have confidence it was so. And John, who was there and saw Jesus' last breath and then saw him alive and saw an empty tomb, John wanted you to know it was so. And James, a brother of Jesus who did not believe until Jesus rose from the dead because good grief, you're not going to believe your brother's God, are you? He believed it was so. And there was this Pharisee who tried to end this movement of Christianity. His name was Paul. And then one day, he saw Jesus alive too. And he spent the rest of his life taking this message around the known world. So you would know and so I would know. It was so. I don't believe Jesus loves me just because some big religious book tells me that. No, it's way better than that. So, if you're trying to figure out, well, what's God like? And how do I even know? And can I trust these documents in the New Testament? Yeah, you can trust them. If you want to know what God is like, the best place to look is Jesus, because he told us. Next week, can't miss next week. Next week, I'm going to explain to you the three reasons why you can trust Jesus and what he says. And I'm going to teach you three things that he taught us about God. And I'm going to show you how you can discover for yourself what God is like. Who needs God? Well, these eyewitnesses say we all do. But not because the Bible says so. Because history tells us so. Let me pray for us. Father, it is extraordinary to think you have preserved these ancient texts over the years. Thank you so much for that. Thank you for these eyewitnesses who recorded what they saw, heard, and experienced. Thank you for the the pinpoint accuracy with which they recorded things so it could be verified right there in the first century and still remain credible today. Help us to be open and honest enough with ourselves to explore what that means for us. In Jesus' name, amen. You guys have a great Labor Day weekend. We'll see you.